thank you, Kendra, and the worship team, as always. So, so beautiful. Let's, uh, let's pray together before we look at God's Word. It's always good to talk to the author. Father, we ask that you give us the strong, vivid sense that you are by our side today, that you are with us, with our co-workers, our family, our church family this week in our business time, our downtime. Father, help us to be present so that we may be aware of your presence. And by your grace, Father, we will not go anywhere where you are not welcome. And Father, let not the voices drown out your own voice around us. And Father, we ask that you let no other passion or longing interfere with our communion with you. And let no word that comes out of our mouth that is not meant for your ears. And Father, we ask that you maintain our hearts at peace in your word. We know your desire, Lord, for you have shown us your son. We know how you long for people to hear and experience the love and the power of your salvation. And we look forward to the day when you will rule completely. And this promise will be completely fulfilled. We thank you for the promises of Isaiah 55. And we thank you for the effect that it's having in the inauguration of that promise with Jesus of Nazareth. And we look forward to the culmination. We depend on your strong hand. And we ask that you give us hearts and minds of wisdom to know your way. Father, I ask that we, we pray ourselves into your story and be part of what you're doing. Father, we ask that you open our eyes to our community, especially those who go unseen and unheard by everyone else but you. Show us so that we will notice them. Jesus, we ask you to teach us to pray with the passion and persistence that you ask your disciples. We tire so easily. Help us not to give up, but to continue to cry out loud, as the psalmist said, day in and day out, as we ask for your intervention in the world. world. And Holy Spirit, <clears throat> as the church gathers around the globe this morning, today, help us to look to Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We ask that you interrupt our plans, our programs, whenever necessary, so that we give you our full attention. And so, Father, we give our, t our attention to your scriptures this morning and ask that you bless them in, to our hearts and change our hearts with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are continuing in Colossians. And I had um, Gigi read Isaiah 55 because I think that's kind of what Paul is saying here, that what we are seeing in Colossians is sort of a this inauguration, this fulfillment of what she was reading about in Isaiah 55, that this is study that's happening in, uh, in the real world. And so that's what I'm kind of calling this next passage, something that has happened in the real world, uh, that it's not just something in the abstract and something in our, in our imagination. This last week in the Washington Post, I ran across an article that caught my attention. It was written by a guy named Paul Woodruff, who evidently, I don't know him from this except for this article, he had just published a book called uh, Living Toward Virtue. And uh, he's a philosophy professor at the University of Texas and a captain in the, or was a captain in the United States Army. And he starts off talking about the beauty of the soul. And that's what caught my attention, that here in the Washington Post is this article on the soul. And he starts talking about the beauty of the soul. And then he also goes on to say how easily the beauty is tarnished and how easily the soul is fractured. And he kind of cites his example as um, his experience in, in Vietnam. 
he tells a story about how he, um, he, because of some errors that he had made and his helicopter pilot had made, that they failed to rescue two of his friends. And he said he lived with that as a plague throughout his entire life of uh, imagining this vision and even having dreams about these two friends, you know, reaching up to the dark sky looking for help that never came uh, because he wasn't there to help them and save them. He says, and then he had to commit a, uh, submit a report, write a report as a project, and his commanding officer had him destroy that report because the commander said it made him look bad. And he said, and literally he said, my, I feel like my soul was poisoned. And then he goes on to say this. He says, I felt broken on my return. I needed to put something of myself back together. The problem was not my personal identity. It was not my mind. I now realize that it was my soul that was broken. Doing what you believe to be wrong leaves your soul divided against itself. And that sort of division is agony. The worst kind of agony, according to Socrates, because your soul is the most important part of you. A broken soul can be impossible to live with, both for you and for those who love you. And that really caught my attention, and I think this is exactly what Paul is talking about in this section of, of Colossians. He is talking about the tarnished soul, the fractured soul, and how that is repaired and how we can restore that. The soul, we talk about the soul of a person, it's the thing that integrates everything. It's the thing that enlivens us. It's the thing that correlates everything about us into this soul. And it can be tarnished, it can be fractured, but the wonderful thing about the soul is that it can be restored. And I think that's what Paul is getting at in this, in this section that we're going to be looking at, this first paragraph in, in chapter 2, actually the first two, last two verses of chapter 1, and then the first paragraph of chapter 2. Uh, somehow the soul is even more magnificent because it's been ruined and restored than it was before. There's something actually incredibly gracious about that. And Paul is claiming that something has happened in the real world with real people, with real effects right now, right now. Uh, that Paul sees the gospel as this sort of humanizing project of restoring the fractured soul, of restoring the beauty that was the soul. And he begins it by talking about in chapter 1, he introduces it by this is what he calls the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ living within you. That this is this restoration, this, this, this restoring of beauty of the soul. The soul is this life center of the human being. And Paul is saying you need to pay attention to it. You need to nurture it, and you need to help others nurture it so that our souls flourish. And this happens in real time. This is not some, something that happens in the abstract or that we're waiting to be evacuated from this earth, either by death or rapture or whatever, that this is happening now, real time, real lives, real effects with real people. This Christ living within us, this mystery. And he says, this is what matters the most. I think verses 28 verses 28 and 29 of chapter 1. You remember in high school when the teachers would tell you to write an essay or, or report and they made you write a topical sentence, you know, for every paragraph you have to have a topic sentence? Well, I think verses 27 and 28, I think, or 28 and 29, this is the topic sentences for chapter 2. Uh, I don't think it's, uh, this is the way I've divided it. It's kind of introducing what he's going to be saying, that this humanizing project is the restoration of the human soul. Let's look at it. He is the one we are proclaiming, Christ being the one we are proclaiming. 
we are instructing everybody and teaching everybody in every kind of wisdom so that we can be present, so we can present everybody grown up, complete in the king. That's what I am working for, struggling with all his energy, which is powerfully at work within me. This is this humanizing project. And he says it is offered to the world that uh, he wants to present everybody to grow and to healing in their soul. He's not saying this is this new religion that I want you to try. Why don't you try it on and see if you like it? That's not what he's getting at. He's not saying, well, here's this prayer, and if you pray it, maybe you'll feel better. He is saying this is something else to be offered to the world. And one of the things that, um, that really stood out to me in, this, in these, just these two, first two verses here, these, these last two verses of chapter 1, is that this is something different. And the word all or every appears four times just in this one sentence. That this is a universal offer. This is something that we as Christians can offer the world. He says, I want everybody, instructing everybody, teaching everybody every kind of wisdom so that everybody can be presented to God complete and full of wisdom and grown up and mature. This is the goal. This is not diminishing human. This is humanizing people. A lot of people will complain about Christianity and think that it does dehumanize, that it gets rid of emotions or it gets rid of our normal passions or it turns us into, into carbon copy androids. That is nothing but a smear and a lie. It makes us more human, that we are actually gloriously becoming ourselves. And we were all gloriously different than the people that God is doing the exact same thing in other people. And that together we are maturing together as different people. And this is not this automatic process. This, is, this takes time. It means to, to keep well your heart, that we need to work at this. And it is this process that we keep doing so that we can be presented as grown-up, grown-up people. And Paul says, this is my goal. This is what I'm working toward. This is what this is all about, is to make us more human, more gloriously human, and that we work together to do this, to nourish each other and to, so that our souls flourish. And then he goes on, he says, this is happening in the real world. He, after he kind of gives us this broad view of what his goal is and what he's looking forward to and what he's hoping for, then he directs his, his comments to the Colossians specifically. He says in verses 1 through 3, he says, You see, I'd like you to know just what a struggle I am having on behalf of you and the family in Laodicea and all the people who don't know me by sight, who've never met me. I want their hearts to be encouraged as they are brought together in love. I want them to experience all the wealth of definite understanding and to come to a knowledge of God's mystery in the Messiah, the King. He is the place where you'll find the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says, I am struggling with this. This is not, he's not saying that uh, I'm just barely coping here. I'm just striving and I'm just barely coping. This is a, this is a sporting word. And I think what Paul has in mind is the story of Jacob wrestling with God. 
and uh, that he is striving with God, and he's holding on to God till he receives a blessing. And I think Paul is saying the same thing, that he's holding on to God with all of his strength, and he's struggling with God, wrestling with him. And sometimes that's how we, that's how we have to approach prayer, that sometimes it is just a struggle, and we have to stay there and stay there until we are certain that we know what God is telling us and what God wants us to do. And I think this is the idea that Paul is giving, that he is struggling, he is wrestling with God, and he's staying there in prayer until he can find out, until he can know this is what God wants him to do. And he says, God has said, this is my prayer. He says, I want to give you life. I want to restore your soul. And he, de- he gives them three things he's praying for. He says, there's, there's lots of stuff out there. That is lots of powers out there that don't want your soul to flourish. There's lots of powers out there that want you to stay as a child. And he says it's kind of like Jesus' parable of the seeds. That there's a lot of people, a lot of forces out there that want the seeds to sprout but then get trampled on or then wither. And he says this is what I'm praying for. And first of all, I'm praying for an infused courage. That you will be encouraged. That's what the word means actually is to infuse you with courage, infuse you with strength. Some translations say comfort. Well, that's the same idea. Comfort comes to the word of with, with strength. And he's saying, I'm praying that you will be with strength, infused in courage. And then he says, I want you to be intertwined with each other with love. And that is so important. Humans seem to have this capacity to infuse strength in each other. And, we, and, and that's what's so important about a loving, strong fellowship of Jesus followers that we can infuse strength in each other we have this capacity to do that and we all have experienced grief we've all experienced um, you know struggles and sadness and and it just so happens that that we could use a friend or a family member who come along and actually give us strength and sometimes it's even a stranger who shows kindness to us who gives us a hug and sometimes as for some reason that we have this capacity to, to give strength to each other, to infuse strength with each other. And that's what, the, that's what the fellowship of the body is all about, that we're able to do that. And he says we are, their hearts would be intertwined with love, connected, tied together. And the last thing he says he wants to infuse with courage, he wants to be an, he wants to, he's praying for indivisible love among the body, and then, and then finally he is praying for an intuitive understanding of the wisdom of Christ that we would know. And he says that it's a treasure in Christ, this treasure grove of knowledge and understanding and wisdom. What am I... Um, <clears throat> I think the first book I ever got, the first real book that wasn't a child's picture book, was given to me by my grandmother, Treasure Island. And uh, we love those stories, you know, of the pirates and stuff, that who get the maps, and they, they are looking for, for hidden treasure, and they try to find it. Well, that's kind of the idea that Paul's painting here, that there is this treasure grove, treasure grove of, of, of wisdom and knowledge in Jesus Christ. And he says, well, I want you to find it there. And it just, we just ponder this for just a second here. That, that if you're really looking through the telescope at the most distant star, that's thinking God's thoughts after him. Or if you're looking at a microscope at the smallest thing you could possibly see with a human eye, 
That's wisdom from Jesus Christ. If we're looking at nature or, or the world, a good creation that was created by this good God in and through and for the King Jesus, the Messiah, then we are gathering this knowledge. It's, we're thinking God's thoughts after him. If we want to explore great th- philosophical ideas, it's all thinking God's thoughts after him. This is all wisdom. Thomas Aquinas said, if it's true, it's of the Holy Spirit. And this is where we find wisdom, and this is where we find truth. I, I feel like <clears throat> many times in the Western world, we have made Christianity just an ideology to compete against other ideologies, other isms. And we have to defeat those ideologies. We have to defeat those wisdoms. That we've got our ideology, we've got our thing, and we've got to defeat whatever ism it is. Communism, fascism, wokeism, whatever you think it is, we've got to defeat it. We've got to crush them almost. When in reality, in Christ, it's how we see everything. It is truth. It is wisdom. It's how we see everything else. When we spend time in prayer, it's not just one thing out of a thousand things that we do. It's the one thing we do to see a thousand things. It's how we look at the world. It's how we look at the creation, how we look at the universe. And that's how we see. It is a lens to look through. It's not a competing ideology. It is just truth. And we look at those things through the lens of of the Messiah, the King who lives within us. That's that's how we see things. And this is the wonderful thing about human beings, is the soul can be restored. It can be well-kept. That's what what the restoration means. It's just a well-kept heart. And the person is capable of responding to situations in ways that are good and right. And that's what wisdom means. So, We're going to look at verses 4 through 5. He says, I'm saying this so that nobody will deceive you with possible words, with plausible words, though I'm away from you in person. You see, I am present with you in spirit, and I'm celebrating as I keep an eye on your good order and and the solidity of your faith in the king. He's saying that there's a lot of things out there that are plausible. And he's saying, don't pay attention to those. Don't get caught up in those things. We see things through Jesus Christ through that lens. And there's a lot of stuff that's plausible out there. People who say, oh, all this came about by chance, by random chance. That's plausible. Or if say, hey, we, we've discovered the secret of how to know God. We meet on Monday nights. Why don't you come and you can learn the secret with us? It may be very, very plausible. Lots of things that are very plausible. If they weren't plausible, they wouldn't be dangerous. If it was just nonsense, they wouldn't be dangerous. But these things, so many things sound clear. And, Jesus, and Paul is saying, you look at Jesus, that is where the wisdom is found. That is where the treasure is found. That's how we see everything else. And he goes on to say, we need to take this seriously. We need to take the nurture of our soul very seriously. And he closes out in these, this paragraph, the last two verses, in verses 6 through 7. He's, uh, my Bible has it in the next paragraph, but I think really think these two verses kind of close out this paragraph. So then, just as you received King Jesus, the Lord, you must continue your journey in Him. You must put down healthy roots in Him, being built up brick by brick in Him, and established strongly in the faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. 
And that's really what it means to restore our soul, to work to restore our soul. And Paul is famous for mixing his metaphors, okay? And he does that here. He likes to mix his metaphors. But I think this is reasonable for Paul because he's so immersed in the Old Testament. He's so immersed in the Jewish Bible that these images just come naturally to him. And he starts off by saying, first of all, you, you, you receive him and you walk in him like you receive him. And that's so common to see in the Psalms and the Proverbs. You're walking. This whole thing is a journey. This whole thing is a process. And he's saying you receive and you walk. You receive and you walk. You receive and you walk. It is this journey that we are taking. Uh, Sue was telling me that among artists, there's sort of this mantra that says there's no perfection in art, only progress. And I think that's also true of the Christian life. There's no perfection in the Christian life. There's only progress. And this is the image that he's given is that we walk and we walk and we walk. The Franciscans call this having the beginner's mind. That we always live with the beginner's mind. Always looking to begin again, to learn again. And he says you walk in the way that you received him. And think about how did you receive him? With faith and freedom. You trusted him, and you had the freedom to choose to do that. And I think freedom is a responsibility here that we, we kind of neglect. We just think that, okay, I, I'm saved, and we go on. But he says we, you walk in the same way that you received him, and that is by trusting him and with freedom. And when I say freedom, I'm not talking about doing anything you want. I'm talking about the freedom to take responsibility. We decide to do this. We decide, we have the freedom to decide to do this. That's why we see so, much, so many people wanting to claim victimhood or looking to blame other people for this problem or that problem is because we don't want to take responsibility. But Paul is saying, you have a responsibility. You receive, you trust, and you walk. You get to decide. You get to decide whether you want to do that. Why do you want to follow Jesus? And then the next metaphor, he says, are the roots that, that putting down roots in the plant and the new life comes up. And that's exactly what Isaiah 55 is all about. He says, the word comes down like snow and rain and waters the soil. And out of that rain and, rain and snow, new life comes up. And he says, that's what this is all about, this new garden. And if you want to look at Revelation 21 and 22, that's exactly what he describes. This new garden that is coming up. And I believe this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 55. And then the last metaphor is brick by brick. And I think what Paul has in mind here is the temple. Because this is where God, this is where heaven and earth meet, whereas in the temple. And he says, now you build it up brick by brick in your life. Brick by brick. Little by little. We build the temple of our soul. Most of you are familiar with Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs, you know, where you have to meet certain needs before you can go on to the next need. And then you go on up higher. And that is so true. And uh, if you've ever been in a car where you really had to go to the bathroom, you don't think of anything else. <laughs> That's all you think of in your mind. It's like, where's the next rest stop? That's a hierarchy of needs. No other thing matters. 
Well, Paul is saying you build this brick by brick. And it starts with being thankful. It starts with being gratitude. And then you can build on that. There's no end run, end, end run around that to compassion and mercy and forgiveness of others. It happens brick by brick by brick. And when we realize what Christ has done, who he is, you realize who we are in Christ, the appropriate response is gratitude. And he says that's where it starts. And then you build up on that brick by brick by brick. Most of us have had um, questions in our Christian life. I know we haven't. I've, I've told this story before of is this real? Does this really exist? Does it really matter? Are we just playing games here? Are we just waiting out to be evacuated from this planet? What is it? Is it real? We, Sue and I went through this on, as it, when we were on the mission field back in the 90s and, and um, just wondering, what is it exactly are we selling? And for some reason, it didn't sound like good news anymore. It actually sounded a little irrelevant, that it really wasn't affecting what we were doing in real life, real time, with real people. That if Jesus is real, and if he exists, then in my opinion, he must affect all of life, not just death, everything. And so we were going through this, and we were visiting her, her folks uh, one summer, and uh, her brother, my brother-in-law, just happened to leave a book on the ping-pong table in the basement. Just a coincidence, right? And I picked it up and read it, and it was Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy. And totally answered what I was asking. And that is, what is all this about? Is it just about being evacuated from the planet? Are we just playing games until that happens? Are we just biding time till that happens? And I realized that, and Dallas Willard lays down in a beautiful way, that this is God's plan. This is God's plan to fulfill Isaiah 55, really that whole section of Isaiah and the other prophets as well. That he affects real life, real people with real effects and real change. That he, he answers those questions when I was wondering to understand, wanting to understand these, how to navigate finances, how to navigate relationships, how to navigate work, my civic duty, society, all these things. Is this, is this just a game or does, is this really real? But if Christ lived and taught and he died and he rose again, then it affects everything. If it doesn't affect everything, it doesn't affect anything. And this affects everything. And what is central, what Paul is getting at in these last two verses, is that our own spiritual formation is central. Our own spiritual nourishment of the soul is central to everything else. It is not divided from secular world or other world. It is just everything. It is all holistic. And a soul divided, like Woodruff said, is just living in agony. And Jesus is here to heal our soul. 
He's here to restore the beauty. He's here to mend the fractures of our soul. It is not separate. Our inner life and our outer life is not separate, but our actions should overflow out of our, out of our heart. If it doesn't, we really don't accomplish anything. And then we have to ask the question, do we have anything really to offer the world? And according to Paul, he says, absolutely. Instruct everybody, teach everybody in all wisdom so everybody will be presented to Christ mature, grown up, and complete in the Messiah. We do have things to offer the world. <clears throat> I realized I was a boomer when uh, I, like, I like listening to music on YouTube. And uh, the algorithms, right, you know, come up, and there was an old Eagle song that I absolutely love, and it came up, and I was listening to it, and I was telling this friend about it, who's a millennial, younger guy, and he goes, yeah, that algorithm was thinking, well, here's something that boomer will like, you know, <laughs> the eagles. And they were right. They were right. Of course they were. But boomers have this reputation of being kind of um, old, crotchety men who don't like to change. I like things the way they are. Don't bother me with all this stuff. You know, I don't want to see any change here. You know, kids these days, you know. And that reputation is well-earned in a lot of ways. But you know what I've also found? I really found that some of these people in my generation and those older than me, they turn out to be some of the most forgiving, merciful people I've ever met. Because they've lived, they've known that they've tried things and they didn't work, and they know that, that we need to cut each other some slack. I have a 93-year-old aunt who every time I talk on the phone, and Sue talks to her on the phone too, and it's just like a glass of cold water because she is so forgiving. She is so accepting. And, and so, so open about everything. And her husband was the same way. Her husband, my uncle, passed away a couple of years ago. And they were the same way. And I remember sitting down with my Uncle James, and he said, yeah, Tommy... These things don't bother me like they used to. And I think that's growth. That's maturity. That's being presented as a grown-up in the presence of Christ. This is a man and a woman who has been formed by the Savior, whose soul has been restored, whose beauty has been re regained, whose fractures have been healed. I'm going to give you a specific challenge. There's some, something coming up in the next couple of years that I'm really dreading, and that is the 2024 election. <laughs> I'm really dreading that. No doubt we live in a polarized society. And uh, it felt like we're in this constant season of elections, a constant season of this. It felt like we just get rid of one and we get to do it again. Well, instead of talking about what, you know, gearing up, what, how are you going to fight your battles or whatever, uh, I, I got a, another question based on this, this chapter 2 of Colossians, and that is, uh, what kind of person do you want to be in 2024? 
How about that question? Instead of who you're going to campaign for or vote for, I don't really care. But what kind of person do you want to be in 2024? What kind of person? Um, how do we become the people where we see hidden treasures of wisdom in all this and knowledge and that we are able to nurture our soul in this time and not get caught up in the noise? Policy, that's debatable. Virtue is not. Virtue is the standard. Virtue is what we're looking for. And again, I don't care. But just as the things come up, I'm just dreading the noise again. And I'm thinking, what kind of person do I want to be in the midst of all this? And I think one discipline that I think is great for our day today is silence and solitude. I think that's what we need more than anything today, silence and solitude. I think silence and solitude give us the antidote to the noise. Silence and solitude gives us the antidote that I don't have to carry that burden or, or checklist that I have to do or, or have a specific position that I discover with silence and solitude that I do have a soul and it needs to be restored and the beauty needs to be re re replenished and the fractures need to be healed. And you don't have to be some spiritual elite monastic person looking for a cabin for the weekend or joining a monastery. Just some time. And it may take some hours. It may take two or three, four, five, six hours on one day. I don't know. But just some time to remember that you have a soul in all the noise, in all the stuff that's going on. And the second thing is as best as we can, Find the stuff that bind us. Find the things that bind us together. More than anything else, find those things and dis resist all the disruptions, all the things that, that, that want to tear us apart. We bless people whether we get blessed or not. We pray for others whether we get prayed for or not. This is a gift that we can recognize the humanness of other people recognize the humanness and, and the temptation that uh, we have to be alike or we have to, to cultivate compassion. You cannot cultivate compassion in the abstract. It has to be with other people. It has to be on the concrete, in real life, in the real world, with real people. And I think if we try to isolate ourselves with people who just think like us, we're missing an incredible opportunity. That's how we grow in compassion. That's how we develop. That's how we restore the soul. So do Christians have an, something to offer to the world? Yes. And the key word here is offer. Not coerce, not crush, not force. It's offer. We offer the presence of Christ to see things through him. We're here to, to explain the mystery of Christ within us. We're here to offer our Christian resources. What are our resources? Checkbook, maybe. But the resources I'm talking about, Paul calls fruit. Love, joy, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. 
These are our resources that we have to offer, and offer is the key word. My point is that God is doing something in the real world right now. He desires to restore our soul. The soul is the life center of our people, of us. And we are called to nurture it, and we're called to help other people nurture their souls. That's what Paul is getting at. Brick by brick, inch by inch, walking as we receive, this is what we have to offer. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the challenge that Paul has given us. Father, it's my prayer that we stay focused as a church, as individuals, on your goodness who have called us to change and who's called us to be a, someone who can offer wisdom and great understanding so that we can present everybody grown up and mature in you. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.